and there were many blessings that came from that. And I haven't seen Stuart a lot since those times. It's always been a delight to see him. Um, interestingly, he came from the parish of Fig Tree, uh, where he had a significant input. He left just before I came, um, or a couple of years after uh, I arrived, and he went up to Sydney and I came down to Wollongong. And so it's a delight to host Stuart here as he speaks on this topic of the experience of revival in Australia. Now, for those who don't know Stuart, uh, he is Dr. Stuart or Associate Professor Stuart Piggin. Uh, he was the director for the Centre of Christian uh, History of Christian Thought and Experience at Macquarie University. He's a graduate of the universities of Sydney and London and of the College, Melbourne College of Divinity. Uh, he lectured in religious history at the universities of Wollongong and Sydney from 1974 through to 1990, before becoming the master of Robert Menzies College at Macquarie University from 1990 to 2004. His areas of research include the study of evangelical Christianity, missions and revivals, as well as the human response to disasters. He's written over 100 articles for academic journals and at least nine books, including a number of works on the experience of revival in Australia. His latest book, uh, which this year won the Australian Christian Book of the Year, uh, is this one here. Uh, and I've started reading it. It's called The Fountain of Public Prosperity. It is a fascinating book. Uh, and Stuart and his co-author, Robert Linder, are seeking to plug a hole in, if I can say, the historical record of Australia by recording the influence that evangelical Christians have had upon the country. A great endeavour. There's chapters all through it on the revivals that have been taking place over hundreds of years here in the country that many people know nothing about. And it's, it's a wonderful read. That's the first book. The second one is coming out in December. I got my invite, Stuart, to the uh, opening of it. <laughs> and uh, I've got this one. I will look forward to getting the other one. So without saying anything more, can I get you to welcome Stuart, Dr. Stuart Piggin here to speak to us tonight. Excellent. Well, it is, it is lovely to be here for lots of reasons. Um, this was the home church of my beloved uncle Rod West and Janet, and it's lovely to see Janet here tonight. And uh, this church, of course, is a very venerable church in the diocese, and so it's lovely to be in a place where the Lord has blessed, and it's great to be with Bruce and Kath again after all these years. I was about to calculate how long it was and Kath told me not to calculate that but when I looked at her I saw that she hadn't changed at all so it can't have been that long ago. <laughs> well, um, let me begin this way. We Australians have a reputation for being not very religious. We think about revivals as being an American thing, not an Australian thing. And there are copious negative assessments uh, in the secular histories of the religious factor in Australian life and in the beginning of this book, in a, one of the many long footnotes, I give a, a catalogue of some of these negative views. Some of them are rather interesting. Uh, religion has not taken a spectacular part in our past, has not determined the life of a people. It's fairly unobtrusive. Manning Clark characterised Australia as a kingdom of nothingness. Tom Collins, in that great classic, uh, Such is Life, said a metaphysical question seems to slip away from the average Australian's mind like a wet melon seed. D.H. Lawrence said there's no... Ins uh, in, he, he was in Australia for just 
just six weeks before he came to this uh, great conclusion that, that Australians have no inside life of any sort, just a long lapse of long lapse and drift, a rather fascinating indifference to what uh, we would call soul or spirit. It's really a weird show, he said, and so on. Uh, I began to um, uh, to be a little suspicious of that when I began to make a study of a mine disaster in Wollongong where I was a historian. Uh, this was a study of the Mount Kembla mine disaster of 1902 with 96 men and boys killed. It's Australia's biggest disaster before the 2009 Victorian bushfires, Black Saturday, 7th of February 2009, when 173 died. You see, I'm interested in disasters and the church, and sometimes I have difficulty distinguishing between the two. Now, <coughs> Australians have a reputation for facing death in a nonchalant way. Henry Lawson famously said, we don't want to go to heaven, we don't want to go to hell. When I die and turns me toes up, I just want a little ease. But the first thing I noticed at the Mount Kembla cemeteries was how religious the sentiments were on the gravestones. See if I can get this right. Here we read sentiments like, make haste to Christ, make no delay, for no one knows their dying day. And when coping with calamity, Australians apparently prefer the grace which comes through faith rather than the avoidance which comes through nonchalance. I think probably all people in extremity uh, uh, realise their need for, for grace. But there was something more remarkable about the Mount Kembla disaster which made me question the stereotypes about Australians and religion. It's really the origins of this book. There was a genuine religious revival at Mount Kembla just a few months before the disaster. I was astonished to discover this in the local press which went on about it at great length because I thought Australia did not have revivals. This was in the middle of the 70s. I didn't know anything about Australian history much and I, I thought that Australia didn't have revivals, but uh, in actual fact I've found since then that there have been many local revivals. So let's begin with a definition. Revival is an intensification of the gracious work of the Holy Spirit in convicting, converting, liberating, joy-filling and commissioning for service. I was told not to hit that button. Awakening people to the reality of God as both infinitely loving and perfectly holy and affirming their assurance to the reality, uh, their assurance that Jesus in his death and resurrection is the answer. Uh, thus revitalising their churches and reforming the wider community uh, of which they are part. Just notice in that definition that revival is a Trinitarian matter. The Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit are all involved. It focuses the mind and heart on what Jesus has done and is doing now. Revival, I think, is all about uh, people who, who get revived tend to be people who are interested in what God is doing now. The presence of God in the present is a good way of understanding uh, an interest in revival. And also notice that it's not confined to the church community. The thing about revivals is that they spill over into the wider community, resulting in social transformation. I'm going to make a bit of a thing about that because I, I want us all to understand that even just by faithfully committing ourselves to the church each week, we are, we are inevitably 
creating social capital in the community. Um, there's, there was a study made of, of the difference between the contribution which churchgoers make and non-churchgoers to the social capital in our community. A study called The Religious Factor in Australian Life by a, a sociologist called Gary Bomer. And uh, it is just incredible the way Christians just automatically by virtue of their, their faith in, in Christ and, their, and, and the love which comes from that, how they generate uh, social capital. Well, uh, in volume two of our book, we argue that the 1959, that's volume two on the, le on the right there, the 1959 uh, Billy Graham crusade, which was attended, as you know, by 25% of the Australian population, 1.24% of the population accepted Billy's invitation to come to Christ. I came to the conclusion in 1989 when I was invited to give a lecture on this at Moore College that it was a genuine revival because of its impact on those outside the church as well as those inside it. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence of that at the time. It was, it was plentiful and colourful. The, the Sunday Mirror, which uh, appeared the Sunday after the final meeting of the Sydney Crusade, includes an article headed, Thug Gives Up Revolver. Burglar Hands Over Toolkit. Imagine being someone who was giving some assistance at the Billy Graham crusade to be given a revolver by someone who was just converted on the spot. Uh, and Magistrate A.E. Debenham claimed that the Billy Graham crusade has cut crime in Sydney by an estimated 50%. This claim was accompanied by stories of a safe breaker handing the instruments of his trade to one flabbergasted councillor, a gunman surrendering his revolver, Businesses were reporting an epidemic of repayment of bad debts, while church attendance in King's Cross, Sydney's red light district, had risen to record heights. A keen Anglican all his life, Debenham went to every crusade meeting. The nature of his work involved protracted interviews with people brought before the courts. He didn't hesitate to probe their spiritual condition, and on the basis of such intimate discussions, he concluded that Billy Graham was having a deep impact on the human psyche in Sydney. Many a dormant conscience was awakened. A young woman confessed to her university that she had obtained her degree through cheating. A bank employee informed a bank of official that he had embezzled a small sum of money. Expecting to be dismissed, he was the means instead of the officials going to the crusade where he too was converted. Billy's searching preaching even uncovered a spy. One Francis Burney had been a member of the Communist Party during World War II and had worked in Dr. Ebbett's office in Canberra in the early 1950s, and, the, and she'd been under investigation for passing on secrets to Russian communists. In 1953, she professed to make a, f a full confession to ASIO, but following the 1959 Graham Crusade, she contacted ASIO to make a yet fuller confession and clean her troubled conscience. So such copious... Uh, anecdotes, was, that was an encouragement to me to look at broader statistical evidence. And the number of convictions uh, for all crimes committed in Australia doubled between 1920 and 1950 and then doubled again between 1950 and 1959 when the population increased by only one quarter. Then in 1960, 1961 and 1962, the number of convictions remained fairly constant, resuming its dramatic upward trend in the middle and late 1960s. So it's something which occurred at the same time as the Billy Graham Crusade slowed or even stopped the further decline into criminality of community behaviour. Looking at non-criminal social behaviour, the illegitimate birth rate and the per capita assumption of alcohol 
gave rough indices to non-criminal community standards. Again, one is struck at first by the gigantic change in behaviour which overtook Australian society in the late 1950s and 1960s. Ex-nuptial births as a, a proportion of total births fell in the 1940s and early 1950s to an historic low of about 3.9 per 100. They then began to climb fiercely in the middle and late 1950s, heralding the permissive 1960s. In the period 1955 to 1965, this index rose every year to almost double the 1954 figure. But the year that it rose slowest, 0.06%, almost nothing, was in 1960. The illegitimate children not conceived in 1959 were not born in 1960. Turning to alcohol consumption, I said to Bernie Judd, remember Bernie was such a uh, campaigner for temperance, I said to him, is it likely that Billy Graham had an impact on alcohol? Oh, he said, I don't think that's likely. I looked at the statistics and found that there was a 10% reduction in alcohol consumption. I said to Bernie, how do you explain that? He said, that is interesting. <laughs> well, going back to the beginning of our white history, our book, The Fountain of Public Prosperity, begins not in 1788, but in 1740 with the evangelical revival. We tell the, the story of the conversion through the ministry of George Whitfield during the revival of Margaret Gambier, who married Charles Middleton, who was also converted, and the two of them were at the centre of, the, uh, of a group of slave trade abolitionists. And it was Charles who was appointed controller of the Navy, and he was determined that the First Fleet would be nothing like the slave trade. So it was he who chose the, the, the 11 ships of the First Fleet and made sure that they were seaworthy and so well provisioned that hardly anyone died and the convicts arrived at, at, convict, uh, at Sydney Cove healthier than when they left Britain. It's an amazing thing, the First Fleet. There's a great deal of evidence about the, uh, a discussion of that in the book. But revival also was uh, experienced among convict people. Australia would have been an unhealthy society morally, socially and spiritually, where nothing done to reform the convicts. William Haygarth, uh, he's the one who gave us the, the, the title for our book, The Fountain of Public Prosperity, those are his words. He thought Christianity fed the fountain of public prosperity. Well, he, from the late 1830s, spent eight years in the Monaro district of New South Wales before returning to England and becoming an Anglican clergyman. And he gave us uh, the title of our book, as I said, as he saw Christian faith, faith feeding the fountain of public prosperity. And he wrote of one of the most remarkable sights, the most gratifying, which Australia can boast, the reformed convict. As for specific revivals among convicts, naval surgeon Colin Browning served on eight convict ships as surgeon superintendent, that is the officer entrusted by government with the entire management, the care, instruction and discipline of convicts. By his compassionate atten attention, the first two of these, uh, he, uh, uh, he managed to uh, dispense with any need for discipline, but he did manage to exercise considerable care and instruction over the convicts. And on the Teresa, the ship Teresa in 1845, he insisted on addressing the convicts on their embar embarkation, thus setting the tone. And afterwards, some convicts attributed to his address their first awakening from spiritual death. He enrolled the convicts on the ship on, in 33 schools so that all of them, without exception, landed able to read. He fed them on a steady diet of Bible, prayer, prayer book and sermons. And his, his, to his delight, 
The awakenings became so general that the ship's company experienced genuine revival. The convicts, 220 in number, embarked on the 24th of March, 1845. By the 16th of April, eight reported coming under conviction of sin and sought the opportunity to meet with Browning called the social worship of God. By the 28th of April, the number had reached 14. By the 5th of May, it was 21. By the 7th of May, it was 27. By the 13th of May, 32. And by the 7th of July, 156 had dedicated themselves to the service of Christ. The guards had little to do except commend the convicts for their exemplary conduct. There were no floggings, no use of irons. Not one prisoner was placed under the care of a sentry. And Browning's conclusion, he said, I find the amount of reformation among the convicts strikingly to correspond with the degree of diligence and zeal with which the gospel in its divine simplicity was brought to bear from the hour of embarkation upon their understandings, consciences and hearts. Missions among indigenous Australians in the 1970, 19th century suffered repeated failure, as you know. That, those failures have been well chronicled by historians. But revivals among Aboriginal people have actually been fairly common in anticipation of the great Aboriginal revival of 1979, out of which grew the movement for land rights. Normally, these revivals have occurred within Aboriginal communities and have been the means by which they have held themselves together in the face of dispossession and worse. But occasionally, a revival among whites has spilt over into a revival among Aboriginal people. One case was the great revival among copper miners in Munta, South Australia in 1875. From there, the rivers of revival flowed through a nearby farming community at Penang, and there several Aboriginal people were saved. It was pleasing to see these poor blacks on their knees and hear them cry for mercy, black and white, all one in Christ, glory to God. So said the South Australian Primitive Methodist record, January 1876. From 1840 to uh, 1854, a Wesleyan missionary, John Smithies, conducted a mission to the Aborigines in the white settlement in Western Australia. Its unusual success has been attributed to the popularity of Smithies, who was always cheerful, and to the support he received in the exhausting work from Wesleyan Methodist settlers. Smithies was encouraged by the aptitude of Aboriginal children to learn and to participate in Christian worship. But he was especially encouraged by evidence of spiritual depth and even revival uh, among them. Numbers of the Aboriginal children reported having dreams about Jesus and visions of angels. This form of learning about God, he insisted, was consistent with Aboriginal culture and was not incompatible with general revelation although both dreams and visions, he said, could have been induced through reading the scriptures. On the 5th of April, 1844, he baptised 18 Aborigines and 10 days later, at the consecration of the new mission farm, a revival began, on which he reported extensively to the Wesleyan Methodist Missionary Society General Secretary. Quote, it was during this consecratory process that the Spirit's influences were felt. One of our company was deeply wrought upon, and here commenced visibly what has wrought gloriously in the salvation of souls. Wednesday night following, the work of God still went on. Several of the natives were deeply wrought upon. When the natives returned to the mission grant about 10 o'clock, they commenced another prayer meeting in the girls' room and there was no breaking of it till 2 o'clock in the morning. Oh, to have seen these Australians bathed in tears, broken in heart, crying, Jesus, save me, O oh Lord, save me, come and save now, would have astounded infidels and gladdened the hearts of our English friends as it has done ours. Instead of holding school that morning, a prayer meeting was instituted 
And after serious struggle on the part of the native girl, Nomak, the Lord graciously took away her sins and made her happy in his love and favour. She also exclaimed, exclaimed, The Lord save me, O oh, Jesus love me, me love Jesus. And Smithies recounted how Aborigines transformed in the revival, prayed for and rejoiced in the conversion of others, became disciplined and industrious at work, resolved to stay in one place and not go away, gave up on the desire to avenge themselves on those who had wronged them and called on their own, and this was the bit that really got me, they called on their own white masters to seek a new heart. You see, in that particular respect, and in all the others too, the great awakening among the natives of North America was being duplicated in a Western Australian Aboriginal mission. There's a famous story in about the uh, great awakening in America about uh, a planter who heard, he thought, George Whitfield outside his own home preaching. And he went out to check and he saw that, that this, this voice was coming from one of his slaves. And he thought, this is a good show. So he invited all his planter friends to come along to, to enjoy this entertainment. And they all sat down and they were drinking and smoking and all the rest of it. And so the, uh, the slave uh, preached the gospel and then he said, and now my master, you must know you are not my master. I have one master and he is Jesus. And he called the master to account and uh, apparently they all went away sorrowful. So revival among Aboriginal Australians cannot be thought of as merely an instrument for keeping Aborigines under control. It's also an instrument for empowering Indigenous Australians to keep white Australians under control. On the banks of the Murray River, 20 kilometres east of Echuca, a selector, Daniel Matthews, established on his own land a refuge for Aboriginal people, which he named Malaga after its tr traditional name. And from his first encounter with the dispossessed and exploited Aboriginal people of the Yorta Yorta Nation, Matthews took their side. He hunted, he swam, and he fished with them, and he became known to them as Maranuka, friend. Conversions and revivals evidenced an authentically spiritual work, given audible expression in the singing of Sankey's hymns and Negro spirituals. The first conversion in 1877 was Louisa, wife of, of Aaron Atkinson, who was himself converted two months later. And they were the grandparents of Sir Doug Nichols, born at Malaga in 1906, Church of Christ pastor, social activist, champion of the Fitzroy Football Club in Melbourne and Governor of South Australia. Aaron's mother, Kitty Lewis, also had four children and the first of these, William Cooper, was to become a great activist for Aboriginal advancement. He was converted during a revival at Malaga in January 1884. He was a quick learner and Matthews took him and other Indigenous people to Echuca and, and nearby Moana, Moana to evangelistic rallies, concerts and political rallies. In 1887, on the eve of Australia's centenary, Cooper petitioned the Governor of New South Wales to make land grants to Aboriginal people, pretending that the vast territory of Australia was ours by divine right. And by Australia's sesquicentenary, 1938, Cooper had become the leading campaigner for Aboriginal rights. Giving up on governors, he appealed to the King himself for justice and recognition for his people. He made the 26th of January a day of mourning, the forerunner of present-day NADOC. National Aborigines and Islanders Day Observance Committee's week-long celebration of Indigenous culture. And appalled by what, what he learned of the burning of Jewish synagogues in Nazi Germany, Cooper, in 1838, organised a protest at the German consulate in Melbourne. It was an action in stark contrast to that of the Australian Federal Government, which in response to the same persecution, declared that they did not want to allow significant numbers of Jewish refugees into Australia, 
because it was a country without a racial problem and they did not want to import one. 1910, in Jerusalem, the William Cooper Chair for the Study of Resistance during the Holocaust was established at, at Yad Vashem, the World Holocaust Remembrance Centre. I love the way uh, the fruit of revivals leads to these amazing outcomes. Well, I began by mentioning a revival in Nilawara Coalfields in 1902, and I mentioned in passing the revival at Munta Copper Mines in 1875. One also needs to refer to revivals in the gold fields. Gold rushes are reputedly pretty rough places, but the Australian gold fields are often places of surprising sobriety, where the Sabbath was observed when the miners, typically fanatical in their pursuit of hidden treasure, managed to curtail their appetite for non-stop work. Churches were quick, quickly erected on the gold fields, some of them huge, as church going was a well-accepted routine, especially in the Victorian gold fields, where the mining centres like Ballarat and Bendigo became thriving and lasting communities. The churches grew ever stronger, and as a result of the communities they served also, uh, they became stronger, the communities and, and revival began. At Eagle Hawk, near Bendigo, the Wesleyan Methodist Church enjoyed revivals in 1863, 1868, 1870, 1873 and 1876. The very frequency of these revivals raised expectation and confidence that the Lord would do it again. Expectation is, is often prefatory to revival because it makes people pray. They sense that the Lord's blessing is just, just about to come. So they pray with greater earnestness. And if you hear about a revival, you're normally interested to pray for, for one for yourself. Revival is normally caught rather than taught. So in addition to studying revivals in the Bible, Bruce, and in church history, uh, it's important to study revivals by talking to people who have experienced them so that you will catch fire from those who are themselves on fire. Well, among those uh, converted in these revivals on the gold fields that was especially observed were men, men, as if dramatic means were required to change the entrenched habits of adult working class males. Once converted, they became agents of revival in subsequent revivals. Ned Ellis, a Cornish miner, was spectacularly converted in the 1868 Eagle Hawk revival. Matthew Burnett, the missioner, could see it coming. And he asked others at the service to give him room as they were about to have a scene. Ellis convulsed and leaping to his feet, pulled the communion rail to pieces and swinging it on high yelled, I've got it, glory to God. His was a condition diagnosed as shouting happy. And five years later in the 1873 revival, he would go into the pubs in Eagle Hawk and beg the miners to repent. And when they argued the matter with him, employing arguments which he was not equipped to refute, he would fall on his knees and in tears plead with them to come to Christ. Revivals were much reported in the religious and secular papers, especially when under their influence respectable people did unconventional things. After one of Evangelist A.R. Edgar's evening meetings in the Methodist Church in Geelong, West, a supplicant, remained at the penitence bench, refusing to leave until he had received the assurance of God's acceptance. And when at last it came, his friends surrounded him with hallelujahs and then accompanied him home where his wife and parents had long been in bed 
He roused them all, and his parents wept and rejoiced and kissed him. His wife, who was in bed with her baby, became distressed about the state of her own soul. So the minister, who accompanied the new convert home, preached to her through the open door of her bedroom, and she too received Christ. There is no report on what the baby thought of all this. Why did the church enjoy such spiritual prosperity? One John Manderson, reflecting on these revivals 50 years later, reported that the people prayed before the services, beseeching the Lord to anoint the preachers. Um, often instead of having a, an evangelistic rally, hoping that a revival would come, when they sensed that a revival was coming, they then said, oh, a revival's coming, better have an evangelistic rally. So they put it around the other way, and it, and it more often worked that way. They, and those who were prayed over, those preachers who were prayed over and anointed by the prayers, they therefore preached with greater confidence in an inspiring atmosphere. And, quote, because the church uplifted Christ, Christ honoured us with his presence, consistent with his promise in scripture, and, I, and if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Manderson characterised the 1870s as the golden days of church history when the Australian revivals coincided with better-known revivals overseas. It was a time when revivals made evangelism exceptionally fruitful. Southern Hemisphere evidence for Jonathan Edwards' conviction that revivals are the engines of church history. They drive it. Well, you may have noticed that the Aboriginal revivals in both Western Australia and Victoria were facilitated by settlers, godly farmers, who came to the aid of the evangelists, upholding them in prayer and logistical support. In the 1870s, selectors flooded onto the plains of Victoria, taking advantage of new land laws to settle on land previously monopolised by squatters. And astonishingly, some of those squatters helped the selectors to make a success of their farms. One such was George Holloway, who held the leasehold on Duck Swamp Station, 46,500 hectares, and Bort Station, 25,900 hectares. He welcomed the selectors and did all he could to support the Methodist cause. In 1883, and I'm quoting, this year of grace so memorable for the extensive revivals of religions throughout Victoria, Holloway's son Edward, himself a squatter and a Methodist local preacher, joined with two other selectors, organised a mission which ended up lasting for a year and meetings held every night of the week except Saturdays. The harvest was abundant as the people came expecting to meet with God. The three local preachers didn't bother to preach for very long before inviting seekers to the penitent bench, which often was so full that they were soon asked to vacate the bench to make room for others. When the meetings were over, it was necessary to remove the detritus of the pre-converted life which the penitents left behind, tobacco, playing cards, unsavoury literature and gaudy jewellery. They forsook their idols to serve the true and living God, observed the wandering evangelists. They did not know of anyone in that circuit who was left unconverted. The marvellous account of this revival has survived, was written in, in, in longhand, um, and so I included great chunks of it in our book. It's a fabulous story. Let me just read you a little bit of it. Uh, page 445. <coughs> the atmosphere of those meetings is embalmed in the memories of Walter Kentish's younger brother, Cecil. There was the illiterate convert who was so keen to read his testimony at such a meeting that he learned how to read and write in an incredibly short time, unquote. Nervously, the evangelist allowed him to address a meeting. 
His crudity was only equaled by his effectiveness. In appealing to parents, he said, Now, here is the penitent form. It is for you to show an example to your children and come forward. You have seen an old sow going across the paddock to the water hole and her young ones following. So, mothers, it's for you to set the example. At this, a young boy called out, Go on, mother. And so she went forward, followed by some of her children. Any who professed conversion were invited to give their testimony. A bullock driver, a bachelor with a re reputation for dishonesty, held out for longer than most before surrendering to Christ. When he did, with checkbook and swag, he set off on a hundred-mile trek to make reparations to those he had exploited financially. A group of five young men, all reputed to be over six feet tall, attended a number of meetings and held each other by the hand so that they would be able to restrain each other from going forward. But the Spirit had visited them all at once, so they all went out together, still holding hands. Hallelujah. Remarkable. The conversion which caused Cecil the greatest wonderment happened in his own home church. A young woman of about 20 years of age was the only member of a numerous family to remain undecided. For months, her anxious family took her from one church to another, following the course of the mission, that she might find Christ. Often after these meetings, they would not get home to their distant farm until daylight. They would then sleep through the day so that they would be sufficiently awake to take her to, the, to another meeting. The work of the farm was neglected apart from the urgent tasks of feeding the animals and milking the cows. After much searching, the change came in a flash. At the invitation in Cecil's own church, she suddenly jumped to her feet and when she turned to face the audience from the penitent's seat, her face was luminous like that of Stephen, the first martyr. Quote, her face was shining like wax and appeared as though there was a light beneath her skin and rays of light seemed to radiate from her face. The congregation knew that they were in the presence of eternity and the silence deepened. Then she raised her arms and said, I found the Lord. I found the Lord. Joyful tears flooded the church. She became a wonder worker for her Lord and Master. Uh, and so it goes on. Well, the vital Christianity of the evangelicals, and revival in particular, did a lot then for convicts, aborigines, miners and settlers. Returning to where we began, at the coal mining villages of the Illawarra in 1902, there the fire of the spirit fell on each coal mining village in a, in a work described as gloriously monotonous. Mount Kira 214, Mount Kembla 131 professed conversion, Balgani 183, Bulai 292, Helensburg 234 and so on. At Mount Kembla, an intense emotion with an evident assent to the preacher's burning words were imprinted on every face, said the Illawarra Mercury. The revival made an impact on the moral tone of the community. Asked what was the evidence to the man in the street that the revivals was genuine, the Reverend David O'Donnell, an Australian Wesleyan evangelist from Ballarat, replied that the question was a very proper one since there should be works meet for repentance. And he catalogued these four evidences. First, payment of debts. Tradesmen report the settlement of accounts they had long regarded as bad. Second, a pure language. It's said that in the Mount Kira pit, an oath had sc has scarcely been heard since the mission. Third, a fair day's work. The proprietor of one of the missions, of one of the mines, told me that the biggest day's output of coal they ever had followed the mission. Fourth, attendance at church. All the churches reported greatly increased congregations and increase in the membership. Now, the second of those four has made quite an impact on me because I read in the Illawarra Mercury, you would have heard this story before, I'm sure, that when the miners adopted pure speech, 
the pit ponies could no longer understand the commands of the miners and therefore they stopped work. So we're talking here about a miracle. You've got the biggest production, but the pit ponies stopped working. Uh, now that's reported in the Illawarra Mercury and in the South Coast Times, which are just secular newspapers. They were fascinated by, the secular press was then fascinated, the non-Christian press was fascinated by the, these revivals. Uh, when I started to make discovery revivals, I was lecturing in the University of Wollongong and uh, the history department of the University of Wollongong was totally dominated by Marxists. And I said to one of them, uh, uh, I think I found evidence of revival. And the head of the department, very pronounced Labour Party supporter and Marxist, said, <laughs> he said, if you read the, the papers of the, of the North Coast, dairy farmers and that sort of thing, he said, you'll find revivals all over the place. So they knew about it. Um, but uh, why I was so influenced by this over time was that I discovered that in Wales, three years later, the same thing happened. The pit ponies stopped working because they could no longer understand the commands of the miners. But it happened in New South Wales three years before it happened in Wales. So it made me ask the question, was there some connection between the two? Did perhaps the great Welsh revival that we all know about, did that, was that perhaps initiated in Australia? And uh, so at the end of the book, I spent a fair bit of time discussing that proposition. I'd be interested to know what you think of the, the evidence for that. As to 20th century matters, in our second volume, rather than the first, I've already mentioned Billy Graham, but let me talk about the Aboriginal revival of 1979. This was of great power and the unusual longevity. And it came to the neediest of the church's flock, the Aboriginal people. It began in the Uniting Church in Elko Island, Gallywinku, on the 14th of March, 1979. About 30 people gathered with their pastor, Kiniyini Gondara. He thanked those few who had been praying for it for renewal and he said that he too had been praying for revival and he describes what happens next what happened next I asked the group to hold each other's hands and I began to pray for the people and for the church and that God would pour out his Holy Spirit to bring healing and healing and renewal to the hearts of men and women and to the children suddenly we began we began to feel God's Spirit moving in our hearts and the whole form of prayer life suddenly changed and everybody began to pray in unity, in spirit and in harmony. And there was a great noise going on in the room. And we began to ask one another what was going on. Some of us said that God had now visited us and once again established his kingdom among his people. Nightly meetings were now held with upwards of 200 in attendance, some of which went on until 2 o'clock in the morning. Backsliders and fence sitters fell on their knees and implored those who had been liberated to pray for them. On one, one weekend, 128 either accepted Christ or rededicated their lives to him. Not only was the worship reportedly sweeter, but there was also change in the tone of the community. Less drunkenness, petrol sniffing and fighting, greater conscientiousness in work and increased boldness in speaking out against social injustices. Males took over leadership in the church from women. That was considered a very remarkable thing. And of singing in worship, males started to lead it for a change, an, an event apparently of great social significance in Aboriginal society. 
was not only in the camp but in the church and the community as a whole. In fact, the relationships, I'm quoting now, with the church, the council, with the departments, the foremen, the bosses and the workmen, the family and the village life with wives, husbands and children were all affected. It just swept through as though God had turned on a tap and was cleansing out the power of darkness. All the time we could hear singing. People would go past talking about it and at night we would go to sleep hearing people still singing Christian choruses. It was just like Pentecost. Unquote. Unlike most of the revivals in Australian history, the Aboriginal revival was neither localised nor short-lived. When we read the scriptures, explained Ginny Ginny, of Peter and others, when they received the power of the Spirit, they didn't stop, they went out. This was revealed to us and we started to minister to other communities. And using the facilities of the Missionary Aviation Fellowship, the Elko Islanders spread their good news all over Arnhem Land and North and Northwestern Australia. At the Anglican Roper River Mission, Nooka, in eastern Arnhem Land, which had been reduced to a social disaster area by the granting of a liquor licence, the revival came as a form of social salvation. Sister Edna Brooker exclaimed, New life has come to Nooka. Half the population say they have turned to Christ and the transformation from alcohol, petrol sniffing and immorality is very wonderful. At Wailuna in Western Australia, crime dropped to zero. The local publican had to put on free beer in an attempt to entice people back into the pub. In August 1981, revival came to Warburton in Western Australia and some white missionaries sought ministry from Aboriginal Christians and were greatly blessed. Arthur Malcolm, a church army evangelist and from 1985, first Anglican Aboriginal bishop, described the coming of revival to Warburton and Nikatharava in these words. God called all the Christians and so-called Christians together in a place called Cement Creek. There God called them to true repentance in heart and soul. The number of people there was 120. It's funny that that was the same number as in the book of Acts. We wondered, was God saying something with a sense of humour? Anyway, God began to work, doing wonders and miracles. And then the rain poured down to fill Cement Creek with water and the whole 120 were baptised. It didn't rain even anywhere else, just where God began his work among the people. An arrow in the sky told them to go and preach in the town of Warburton. 3,000 people came to the Lord, and then 5,000 as they went on towards Megathara. So this is a repeat of what happened in the book of Acts. This is the work of the underprivileged and powerless people and the Holy Spirit. It was not a convention or the missionary way, with people being ordered from here to there. You see, God used people with an open heart, people who were broken down but open to God, not people who were conformed to some other ways. This is a true story. Amen. The Aboriginal revivals offered a spiritual solution to a desperate cultural and social crisis. Indigenous Australians were suffering from what anthropologists called demoralisation, a disintegrating culture accompanied by alcohol abuse, petrol sniffing, suicide and violence. Factors in the revival bear on issues critical to the dignity and liberation of Aboriginal people. The assumption of control of churches by native pastors the use of the vernacular in worship and other expressions of indigenisation, such as the composition of their own songs. The charismatic element, expressed in healings, exorcism, tongues and visions. The creation of fellowship groups for ministry to one another. The missionary enthusiasm to share the experience of liberation with others of their race. And the institutionalisation of the revival in such ceremonies as the Thanksgiving weekend around the 14th of March, when the revival began. And the 14th of March is still commemorated to this day. John Blackett. Uh, reports on miracles, sightings of angels, numerous visions of fire coming down from heaven, igniting spot fires all over the continent, of a great river flowing from Elko Island to the towns in 
in southern Western Australia of signs in the sky telling the Aboriginal evangelists and their teams where to go next, many dreams, visions, deliverances, even a resurrection or two. These charismatic features of this revival, which made many whites cautious, came to be seen as themselves time-honoured features of Aboriginal culture. This was especially true of the visions which preceded the revival and which continued to feature as the years passed. In 1983, a small Aborig Aboriginal boy in kindergarten at Yarrabah, south of Cairns in Queensland, he did a butterfly painting, putting paint on a piece of paper and folding it in half. When he opened it, he gazed on this remarkable likeness of Christ with a crown of thorns. Everyone... Oh! Tiniani Gondara, the Uniting Church pastor at Galiwinku on Elko Island, where the revival had begun in 1979, he had a vision of crows and flying foxes which are totems of himself and his wife Gelan and of a beautiful girl wearing lots of bangles namely Queen Jezebel and Gondora called out to his wife go to Jerusalem get the blood and wash the cross she did so and when she washed the cross with the blood it turned into a flaming two-edged sword and she thrust it through Jezebel who turned back into a flying fox and exploded then God said to Gondora you lay down every totem and ceremony in each of them there is good and bad all of them must come under my lordship, be washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And then you will see a new Aboriginal culture. I don't want to destroy and leave you empty. I will restore and renew what is good. Tiniani's vision gave him the clear cultural message that Christianity comes not to destroy, but to fulfill Aboriginal aspirations and indeed the aspirations of traditional law. The revival is thus a dramatic, dramatic step by the Aboriginal people towards self-identity. Once during the two centuries of subjugation, they were no people. Now they are a people, God's people. The revival is the power by which the Aboriginal people are moving away from subjugation towards autonomy and a genuinely independent Aboriginal church. For a start, the revival itself was completely led by Aboriginal people. It was when white missionaries were away or had just left an Aboriginal community that revival came. Now, in initiating all of this, Bruce mentioned to me that he was intrigued by the Jesus movement in the United States in the 1970s and 80s. And so I thought I'd just end by talking a little about that in Australia. It did something which all genuine revivals do. It focused on Jesus. All revivals are Jesus movements. So let me just conclude with a brief comment on it. Over Australia Day long weekend in January 1972, the Sunbury Pop Festival was held near Melbourne. About 40,000 long-haired youths attended. It was Australia's answer to Woodstock. Banners read, smash the draft, signifying popular opposition to the war in Vietnam. And Glenna, the Plymouth Brethren wife of John Smith of God Squad fame, was astonished by the spectacle. To her husband, she quoted the words from Joel chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, multitudes, multitudes in the Valley of Decision. John, here they are, she said through her tears. But where is the church? Well, thanks to John himself, the church was there. Jesus freaks, Australians who, I'd, who had identified with the Jesus movement in America, they were present and were baptised in a creek which ran through the property on which the festival was held. One, a hard-drinking member of a bikey gang, testified to the transformation which Jesus had brought to his life. The naked swimmers heard him in silence, respectful of his sincere passion. Two evangelical groups spawned by the Jesus movement were also there, Theos and Truth and Liberation Concern. Glenna Smith 
was thus introduced to the culture which her husband, a one-time Methodist minister and son of a Methodist minister, had embraced the previous year. The Jesus movement radicalised a new generation of evangelical leaders. It was a dissenting counterculture committed to changing the dominant culture and improving the lot of the marginalised in Australian society. It produced ministries characterised by enormous energy, optimism and not a little creativity. They included the House of the New World, H&W in Sydney, the House of the Gentle Bunyip in Melbourne, the House of Freedom in Brisbane, the Last Homely House in Perth, Truth and Liberation Concern, the Abode of the Gentle Toad, the Resurrection Community, Theos Coffee Shops, Jacob's Ladder and God's Squad Motorcycle Club. Most of the leaders of these ministries, John Smith observed, were conservative evangelicals who experienced swift paradigm shifts and embraced the dissenting culture as visionaries and strategists as well as evangelists, communal organisers and pastor teachers. The thought leader of the Australian Jesus movement was probably the much loved and the much suspected Athel Gill, a New Testament scholar of international repute. A member of the staff of the Baptist Theological College of Queensland, he was challenged by his students to create a community where the radical demands of Jesus could be practised or else to stop frustrating them. Stop preparing us for frustration, they said. So he established the House of Freedom, a coffee shop in the Brisbane nightclub district. He was opposed by a conservative Baptists who effectively engineered his dismissal. At the Lausanne conference in 1974, he was among the leaders of the radical evangelicals or, sub or subversives. He insisted that salvation is personal, social, global and cosmic and added that we must repudiate as demonic the attempt to drive a wedge between evangelism and social action. In 1975, he was appointed Dean of Whitley, the Baptist College in Melbourne. And in Melbourne, Gill, responding to growing youth homelessness, created the House of the Gentle Bunyip. And here an attempt was made to find dynamic equivalents to some traditional church practices. For example, the Australian meat pie, with sauce was used instead of bread and wine. The House of the Gentle Bunyip had about 70 members living in community and it organised a wide range of ministries, a youth centre, short-term accommodation for street kids, a food cooperative, a crisis care program for schizophrenics, an alternative primary school, a lunch program for the elderly, an arts and crafts school and a peace and disarmament group. All the things they felt Jesus would have loved. The, the leaders of the Jesus movement spoke of Jesus as the still point, the still point in a turning world. The passionate drive to make Jesus a topic, topic of liberating conversation, concluded John Smith, was possibly the simplest yet most profound of the principles of missiology successfully employed across cultural diversity by Jesus freaks. John Smith's TLC became uh, a, a new church movement. It was necessary because the mainstream churches were so alien to new converts. Uh, so he formed Care and Communication Concern and St Martin's Community Churches. They organised over 4,000 visits to schools, government as well as Christian and church schools, primary as well as secondary to discuss the Christian message in seminars and forums during school hours. School administrators seemed to be only too pleased that someone was doing something for, for at-risk youth. The media too found it easy to make a story out of the work of these evangelistic social activists who rode Harleys, made outspoken condemnations of, of, of established authorities in church and state and addressed pressing social issues such as homelessness, poverty, youth suicide and indigenous land rights. In Australia, the architects of the Jesus movement moved on 
many back into the evangelical churches from which they had come and their churches were never the same again. An example is Peter Corney who directed the Master's Workshop, an alternative youth training scheme for Theos. In 1976 he left that position to become vicar of St Hilary's Kew and developed it into uh, the largest Anglican church in Melbourne with a strong youth ministry. Another is John Hurt, converted to the 1959 Billy Graham Crusade, a Baptist minister, who in 1970 in Sydney established uh, the House of the New World with branches in Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide and Canberra. And among those who were affirmed in the Christian faith at HNW was 1972 Olympic swimming champion Shane Gould. She had laid her Olympic medals on the altar of Gordon Methodist Church in Sydney in thankfulness for the talent she had been given. She committed her life to Christ through the ministry of the Methodist Central Mission. The Jesus movement contributed to making this yet another time, like the, the 1890s, when the reservoirs of evangelical orthodoxy burst their banks and flowed into radical reforms and ideologies. The submerged movement surfaced in the public culture. It was a time also like the, the, the 1890s when Australia was seeking to find its national identity. Members of the Jesus movement, like radicals of, of the 1890s, claimed that their view of Jesus was more authentic than that of the conservative evangelical churches. The latter cared too little for the Australian soul and cared too much for private religious experience. Gill castigated this as decisionism instead of discipleship. The only form in which faith exists in the New Testament, Gill insisted, is discipleship. For leaders of the Jesus movement, conversion was a call to action on behalf of others. This required not only announcing but also enacting Jesus' liberation program in the world, which included the exorcism of demonisms like poverty, hunger, violence, exploitation, greed and environmental despoliation. So you might have come to the conclusion, if you're still awake, that, and you've, and you've traversed this with me, that Australia's revival experience has been rich and significant. But revivals are essentially waking up to the reality about God. And that's always a challenging experience. I love that definition of revival. It's, it's waking up to reality. Because reality is the world as it is perceived by God. Reality is the world as it is perceived by God. And when you adopt that reality, you, d you discover it's completely different from your own sense of reality. That's why it's such a challenging thing. So, by all means, uh, I do encourage you to pray earnestly and together and often for revival. But when you do, keep your head heads down because you need to make sure you're wearing a hard hat because you can never tell what God's going to do. Every revival is different. He will do a new thing. He will do a new thing in Manly. I pray that he will. Well, thanks for your time. Now, Stuart, you can't get away that quickly. That quickly? You've been here for hours, haven't you? <laughs> I'm sure people will have some questions for you. Um, I've got a stack, but I can ask you after. Um, if you've got a question, just put your hand up. You'd like to ask Stuart something? Thank you, Stuart. I saw something on TV on the news two weeks ago about a revival happening now mm -hmm. in Western Australia. Do you know anything about that? No, tell me. Okay, well, the, it became newsworthy because the people who were being converted were destroying their uh, traditional uh, 
ceremonial uh, artifacts and the oh, yes. outrage was universal against that yeah. and that's why it became newsworthy. Yes, that's right. This was a revival among Aboriginal people, wasn't it? It was in Aboriginal communities and they were destroying traditional Aboriginal artifacts, yes. And so some, Abri some uh, Aborigines got very upset by this. Revivals are always uncomfortable. Um, uh, even in the Great Awakening, there were those who, um, who deplored the things that were going on. Jonathan Edwards then wrote his great works on, re on revival in response to the problems that were, were created in the revival. And uh, the, the important thing to, to pick up about Jonathan Edwards is that he said, in every revival, you'll have uncomfortable things happening. But that does not prove that this is not a work of God. That was his essential message. Um, it, was a, it was a message which we all had to think about in the, in the 1990s at the um, so-called Toronto Blessing. Remember the Toronto Blessing of the 1990s? It was called the Laughing Revival and all sorts of funny things happened. People fell down and they, uh, and they, they jerked and did all sorts of thi crazy things. And traditional Christians said the Holy Spirit would never make people do things like that. And uh, if Jonathan Edwards had been there, he would have said, all these unconventional things do not prove that God is not in it. They do not prove necessarily that God is in it because uh, those things are not the true signs of revival. The true signs of revival are not the uh, amazing works of the Spirit. They're the, they're the fruit of the Spirit. Revival is about love, joy, peace. That's a long-winded answer. Yes, John. What about fusion? Can you comment on that? I think that's pretty close to a revival. It's totally worldwide now. It began in the western suburbs of Sydney in a, a sort of coffee shop, or might have, I think coffee shop, yeah. Yes. Who, who was the founder of fusion? Uh, was that chap from, um, uh, from Tasmania? Mal Garvin. Yes, that's right. Yes. 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 It's very interesting that um, a, a, a genuinely spiritual movement, which did a lot for young people, because Fusion was doing a lot for young people, should have started in Australia and then be exported all over the world. And it, it's, it's very interesting to me that there are things which are developing in Australia, which are now, quite apart from our missionary movement, which are genuine Australian spiritual exports. Hillsong is one. There are Hillsongs all over the world now. Sydney Anglicanism is another. There are Sydney Anglican churches all over Britain and all over the place. It's, 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 it's interesting that God is doing this with Australia. Oh, yes. Yes, that is intriguing, isn't it? Although I've, I've often wondered... Um, Bruce began by mentioning the revival prayer movement in, in Sydney in the early 90s. Um, 
which he and his brother-in-law began and, and Dudley organised so well and I was involved in it. It was, it was a, we had wonderful prayer meetings. And it, was, it was very exciting and the, and the temperature rose and that you felt the spiritual tide rising. And when Harry Goodhue became Archbishop and it was, there was such joy when we all sang, O thou who camest from above, the pure celestial fire to embark, kindle the flame of sacred love on the mean altar of my heart. That marvellous hymn. I remember thinking in that service, revival's coming. But it didn't. And I've often wondered why it didn't. And I think it's because we lost the plot. We started to argue among ourselves. We, um, we got engaged in ecclesiastical politics. It's interesting to know what stops revivals. Because I'm sure there'll be many near misses. You know, the, 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 the stream has risen but hasn't over, over, overborne the banks many times. So it's, it, it's necessary to pray through in spite of all these problems that are always there because we're sinners after all. Mm. We've got a couple more hands up. John? Uh, can I sneak in two questions? I did do a little research before I came and I came across the Teresa story, the the Teresa story that you, uh, the ship okay. with the surgeon and stuff, although okay. they talked substantially about the fifth voyage. This Teresa was his sixth voyage and the fifth was more convicts, 284 uh, convicts on board and 264 came to the Lord on the voyage. And there was a recounting of a particular a spectacular storm somewhere off the Cape of Cape Horn, and the ship was struck by lightning, and the mast, the copper in the mast melted and whatnot, and everybody was a bit shaken by that. And um, suddenly, well, they were all a bit subdued for a day or two, uh, following from, from that. And over the course of the next three months, months of the voyage. Uh, the rest of the complement came on board and there was a great revival on board and like you said, uh, I was wondering, sorry, the question was whether or not you'd heard of that one. Um, also another one in um, 1909 where there were too many people to fit into the Sydney Town Hall. Some American evangelists, uh, one of the names was Chapman came. Yes. But the real question is, can we pray for a revival? Is it something come from God or can we as people, are we is it possible for us to initiate or is it something that's born by the Spirit that we have no particular power over? Uh, great question. It is such an important question and I should try to answer it. But I just want to comment on a few earlier things. Uh, so, but I get sidetracked, so make sure that I get back to answering, try to answer that question. Um, uh, on the, the, the convicts being subdued by the fact that the mast was struck by lightning, there was a, a marvellous mission in Australia in the 1890s, the George Grubb Mission. And um, Donald Robinson said this was one of the most significant religious events that have ever... Donald Robinson, Archbishop, said this is one of the most significant religious events which has ever happened in Australian history. All sorts of prominent Sydney Anglican clergy at the time came to the Lord in that particular mission. And when he was in uh, Launceston, there was a minister there who claims that he prayed for an earthquake so that it would stir the people, subdue them and bring them to the mission. And there was an earthquake. And he made the mistake of um, revealing that he was the one who was responsible for it because he prayed for it under God. 
and so he was he was sued by King O'Malley, who was an insurance who was into insurance, and uh, he didn't want to pay all this money, so he they sued him. But that was apparently uh, uh, on the night after the earthquake, three thousand people came to hear George Grubb. So the Lord does these amazing things. Um, now, as to the, the question, can we pray up a revival? Revivals are sovereign works of God. Uh, God will send revival if he want to, if he wants to, and he will withhold it if he wants to. Um, and uh, I'm sure that th there would be so-called revivalist missions who would want to say that you can organise a revival. That's why in America sometimes they, they talk about normal evangelistic meetings as revivals. But it's really not a correct use of the term because a revival is what God does. It's God who revives. We can't revive each other and they're, they're sovereign works of God. But revivals are always, historically, as far as I can see, not always, but normally preceded by three things. People do pray. Now, we've all been involved in prayer meetings over the years and sometimes they're hard work and they, they come and they go. And, and yet before the Billy Graham Crusade in 1959, apparently, the prayer meetings were just incredible. People loved being at prayer meetings and they prayed for hours and they stayed in these huge numbers. All over Sydney and Melbourne, they came in great numbers. So there was a spirit of prayer, which itself would have been the gift of God, I take it. Then there was, then the second thing that, that happens before revivals is this expectation that God is about to do something. This expectation. Now we can create expectation in each other, I guess, but true expectation will come from the Spirit of God. And the third thing is unprecedented unity. The thing which, which most obviously stopped revival in Sydney in 1993 was that the Anglican Church was divided. Um, we didn't love each other. Before Billy Graham in 1959, there was incredible unity among the churches. Nearly all of them agreed um, that they were very happy to have Billy on board. And Billy himself always said, I'm not coming unless you're united. Now, that might have been because he knew that revival is something which um, doesn't normally happen if the churches are divided among themselves. Again, in the Grub Mission, there was a wonderful instance in Goulburn where the dean of the cathedral and the bishop were at loggerheads. They'd been fighting each other for months over some matter to do with the cathedral. And George Grubb said to them, I'm leaving if you guys don't get your act together. And they wept and made up and there was a genuine movement of the spirit in the Goulburn Cathedral immediately after that. That's reported in the literature. So, yeah. Does that answer the question? I think that's helpful, Stuart. I'm going to one last question from Simon. He's, he's already answered. Um, I'm going to bring it to a close. Right. But we're going to do something else. I think it's your glasses. Anyway, you can. Can I get you to put your hands together and thank Stuart? I think you have just got a foretaste of the learning that is there on this particular topic 
and uh, it's been a fascinating night to be here. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, if you would like to buy Stuart's book, um, he's got six here. He's got more out in the car, but they weighed a ton and he didn't want to bring them all the way from the um, school car park. They're not cheap because they're an academic uh, Monash University. $50. <laughs> very, very cheap. <laughs> If you'd like to get one, they're up the back. There are some more uh, in Stuart's car, so we can organise that. Uh, we're actually going to pray. And in response to uh, John's question, which is also Simon's, uh, I'm going to be addressing that in some part uh, this coming Sunday with the first of the messages in the series. And if I can just read to you from um, Psalm 85. Um, The Bible is full of people crying out to God for him to be at work. And Psalm 85, which I'll be speaking on this Sunday, uh, says these words. In verse five, 5 and 6, Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? And they are great words for us to encourage us to seek God, for him to do a great work amongst us to revive us, to bring us to a real life in Christ. And so before we go, we're actually going to just turn to the people next to each other and I want to encourage you to use those words to pray now because there's no point just thinking about this and learning and having a great, uh, if I can say, interesting night hearing about revival. I want God to be at work here to bring us to real life in Christ. And my prayer is that we will have that same passion over these next six weeks. Tonight is just a taster, just to get people excited. We've had about 80 people turn out, which is great. And we're going to finish in about five minutes. And Dave is going to uh, lead us in a song, uh, which many of us will know, which is God, I Need You. And that is at the heart of what the spirit of what we're talking about is. So if I can encourage you just to turn to the people next to you and just pray in response to what you've heard tonight from Stuart, what you've learnt. And then in about five minutes' time, we're going to get David to lead us in a song to close. So let us pray. So I'll, I'll just get you to turn around and pray together. If you haven't met them yet, now would be a good time to say hello.